0: And so you look at these people and you say, wow, there's a form of genius to them that we that we don't fully understand. And then n- they're not just a genius. They become incredibly rich and successful. Mm. So we've kind of grafted the capitalists and then the, and then the intellectual together. Mm. It's unique. There's not a lot of people like this, not a lot of places in the world that have wrong. created these sorts of people. So there is this... That's already exists in Silicon Valley. There's been the cult of Andy Groves at Intel. There's been the cult of uh, Steve Jobs at, 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 at Apple. Uh, the cult of uh, Sergey and Larry, who founded Google. I mean, these guys are gods. Mm-hmm. Then along comes, the, you know, likes of Mark Zuckerberg. Just In a sense, he's just following in the footsteps of uh, of these other um, cult leaders who came before. And, you know, Mark's got his own unique story and his own unique um, um Characteristics, but in a way they fit the same mm-hmm. pattern. Young, successful, early, genius, uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, wealthy and and a kind of black box of technology.
1: Real people is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit SquareHoles.com for more. Radio. Hello there, my name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Stephen Shearer, former Facebook and Instagram MD for Australia and New Zealand, Senior Advisor at McKinsey & Co and TEDx Speaker. Stephen and I sat down at the Sydney office of McKinsey & Co to have a fascinating discussion going way back to Stephen's childhood in small town USA and how he longed to go to university in Europe yet was awarded a scholarship to study in Japan and how this introverted young man became the American everyone wanted to know from fellow students to the local mayor. We hear how Stephen's study of East Asian history and with little interest in tech, he found himself entering the world of the tech juggernauts. We discuss the obsession of the likes of Facebook to be the employer of choice requires putting staff contentment at the top of strategic priorities and how staff incentives from free food for staff and families to the option for female staff to freeze their embryos have become the norm in Silicon Valley to take the distraction away from high-performing teams. We explore the importance of a vision staff can truly believe in and thrive towards, and the fine line between a strong culture and cult-like faith in such young, wealthy, and almost magical leaders. Uh, Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit
0: it! That's what I'm talking about.
1: Wait! Okay, now. From the beginning. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Stephen. Uh, We're about to... We're we're meeting at McKinsey & Co in Sydney, aren't we? Yes, we are. I walked into the reception and I said... Uh, something that they probably hear a hundred times a day. and What a beautiful view. It looks out over the harbour and the It is parks, spectacular. And it's quite oh, spectacular. They're very said. lucky here. Okay. It's apparently the most beautiful view of any of our McKinsey offices. I were, were very proud. So it was um that was good. So thank you so much. I'm going to start off slightly different to what how I start the other interviews, then I'll get on to our, our normal intro. What are you curious about at the moment above all else? So it's a, it's a really big question, but I should, what are, what are you, what's keeping you curious? Wow,
0: that's a great question. Um, I talk a lot about curiosity, actually, and I learned a lot about curiosity uh, over the course of my career, but I've never really been asked that question exactly. I, I think the first answer that comes to mind is I'm, I'm really curious about how this era of digital change is going to play out. Um, now, whether that's curiosity or kind of f- future casting, or but I'm fascinated by the dynamics of what's happening across um, the business, society, democracy, mm. and uh, you know I think we're entering this really amazing period of 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 disruption, good and bad disruption uh, that's really remaking society, the economy, how we how we run the world, and so I'm always voraciously kind of digging down into little. Mm. Uh, little pockets and pools of that to try to understand you know, what's
1: what's happening, what's going on, and what, mm-hmm. how could that play into a bigger tapestry of how the world is, yeah, is okay. changing. And we'll come back to that. Go through, but I'm getting the sense that it's not it's not all positive. There's 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 different elements, kind of fighting forces that are. Yeah,
0: I think we're going through one of these uh, transformations where you know there's 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 going to be all kinds of shades of good and bad that comes out at the other end. And 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 I think as a as a country, as a society, as individuals, we don't really have a grip on yeah. what's going to happen and, and what is the good and what is the bad. So it's a it's an ex, it's an exciting time, I think, to be alive and be in business uh, because there is so much change going on.
1: Yeah, that's great. Now, this is how I start off all these interviews. What were you like as a child? Another kind of bit of a curveball question. But what were you like we're around about eight? Eight, uh, pretty. I think I was pretty introverted. Uh,
0: I think I was relatively um, I guess cu- intellectually curious I was a pretty I was pretty good in school I got good grades and I was also uh, I think it was pretty outgoing uh, I, I grew up in a um, basically a small town in America and you know in those days sounds like a long time ago but it seems just like yesterday you know we you know we didn't have the internet we didn't have uh, mobile phones we didn't you know, you you went out and you explored the world. You had to find the world, right? Mm. The world didn't come to you, and so I so I think that actually was the. Uh, uh, I, I was a very typical probably child of my era, growing up in the you know the era that, you had to step outside to see the world, mm. and and that's what we did. Yeah. What small town USA did you live in? I was born in a place called Buffalo, New York, which many people have heard of. It's a rust belt city, in uh, western New York State on the Great Lakes, and then. When I was relatively young, my parents moved out of the Rust Belt part of the city, out to a, a small town about 20 miles outside of the city. And at that time, that town was uh, really a farming, still a farming community. Um, you go back now, the farms are all gone. It's all Walmart, Walmarts and, Is that right, and McDonald's. Oh, okay. it's, it's part of the suburban sprawl. Yeah. But I was pretty lucky. I, I, I had the urban American kind of you know, steel mill... Uh, childhood, and I also had this suburban, uh, this mm-hmm. uh, rural American, you know, f- a farm on every corner um,
1: kind of b- background as well. My parents are not farmers, but I, I grew up in that. Yeah, what were the community, the people you who lived in your area like when you were a kid? Um, a small town, I'm always. Yeah. Curious. So the
0: the area I'm from is called Western New York, the, the general area, and and Western New York, whether you're from the city or from the smaller towns, there is a characteristic I think of the people in that area is that they're I think it's a very friendly part of the world. It's kind of known. It prides itself on openness and friendliness. Yeah. People are pretty friendly, pretty open, pretty unsophisticated. Uh, you know, it's not a um, it's it's a working class. Uh, it's not a glamorous place to live or grow yeah. up. People do a lot of uh, hunting and fishing, and uh, you know, a lot of American football is big. It's, it's a you know, it's like a meat and potatoes kind of uh, yeah. kind of upbringing. But people are nice. People are open. People are friendly. I, I was very
1: lucky to to grow up there. Yeah. Did you have a clear vision of what you wanted your future to be as a young guy? You, <laughs> who, you said who you does. had good grades, yeah. and, but what, what did you what did you want to be when you grew up? So for me, um, I, and
0: I can trace it back a little bit of tragedy in my 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 childhood. My I had a few siblings who uh, who passed away, uh, mm-hmm. three siblings, in fact, who passed away, and so uh, that I think that really shook us as a family. Um, and shook me and my brother, like one brother who, uh, we survived it all. Uh, So we're still here, but I think it really shook us up. And so that was one factor. And I think another factor, it was was hard on my mother particularly, that she didn't cope well with it. Uh, And so, and then I'm in a small town. And in retrospect, the small town was great, but at the time I found the small town very claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. I didn't, um, uh, I did well at school, but I didn't enjoy school. I actually wanted to get out of school. Yeah, okay. I wanted to go see the world, uh, and so I was. My my bent was to um, to go and kind of get get out of America as well. I think um, this, the kind of Americans kind of fall into two camps. Eventually, one are those that are kind of very comfortable with being in America and just being an American. You know, they don't want to go to other places. I was in the other camp, which is I want to get out and see the yeah, world. Okay. I feel like there's more to the world. Than is that just right? So in America,
1: you could sort of you say that there's those two camps. That absolutely, be quite insular, or quite yeah. insular or thinking. outlooking. Looking yeah, and well, uh,
0: and American. I sort of I'm from a part of America that's very insular of its kind of nature. It's it's in the, in the Midwest, really, uh, and so so you people like me would get drawn to the big cities. We'd want to go to New York or San Francisco, or we'd want to go overseas. Yeah, so I okay. always wanted to travel. Yeah. I wanted to get out of America.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Um, leave? And, and did you study? Did you go to uni? Did you just so get I, random I, jobs? What, what
0: yeah, it? when I was, uh, w- w- it was f- interesting. I was in high school, um, and uh, I went through a phase where I was, uh, I, I was really tired, and I went to see a doctor, and the doctor said, "Well, you're depressed. That's why you get tired. Yeah, you're yeah. just exhausted all the yeah. time." And, and so he said, "You know, you, you you need to. It's mental. It's not physical." and so my mother was pretty smart so she took me off to see a, a, like a career counselor um, and I remember it was like a free uh, program and I sat there was this career counselor and she was a, like a graduate student at the like, university and she just uh, gave me all these tests and stuff and took me through tried to see what my aptitude was and what I was good at and what I liked and I was like in my second year of high school uh, mm-hmm. and I was just I was just I was kind of unhappy frustrated. and I think again some of the tragedy in our family was affecting me as well And it was very profoundly um, positive for me being with uh, getting this counseling from this young woman because she eventually said to me, look, why don't you – you need to get out of high school because you're just frustrated. Mm. And so she said, why don't you um, accelerate? And and in America, high school lasts for four years for most people. And um, I worked out that I could finish in three. Uh, I just crammed the last two years together. So at her suggestion, I went and investigated that. I had to switch high schools to make it happen, but I did. I changed high schools, and I I graduated a year early. Um, And my intention then was to go overseas. So what I did is I applied. I I decided to apply for exchange student things, a year abroad. Uh, In those days, uh, these things are much more common today, In those days one is common. And I only found one that uh, was in my area that was available, and it was to Japan. And the irony was I always wanted to go to Europe. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I just, I was like, I want to go to Europe. And there's this one for Japan, and I was like, well, what the hell? Let's take that. And my parents couldn't afford to send me overseas. We didn't have that kind of money. I needed to get some sort of exchange thing. So I, I, I p- applied for it and I was accepted. And it was Rotary, a Rotary thing. And so I went to Japan with Rotary uh, when I was 17 years old. And it, it was probably one of the you know, biggest door openers of my hmm. life. And I assume that was a
1: competitive. Scholarship. Too. It was, yeah, yeah. That's good. yeah. And in fact, I went. Did that build your confidence? Winning a scholarship oh like that. Oh my god! Yeah. Yes, uh, going overseas at that age. I was really but even just winning the scholarship. I'm always interested in things like that. When I think winning, it, or getting, a, yeah, getting acknowledged, being I guess. chosen,
0: I think was a big hmm. thing. But then it was even bigger once I got to Japan because I was quite. In, I was quite. Um, Um, introverted Mm. I was not uh, an extroverted kid at all Mm. I'd sat in the back I was I was quiet and then you get to I got to Japan and and I lived in a small city where they didn't there were no foreigners at all in those days and so I was I was like a superstar I got to Japan and you know I was like you know I was like Mick Jagger in that town everybody everybody from the mayor to every kid in every school knew who i was i was a celebrity mm. i was a, i was a i can say that with hand of my i was a celebrity in this town for that year yeah. and 17 year old kids suddenly your celebrity girls are literally chasing you down the street <laughs> and i was like you know welcome to the world of being an extrovert yeah. and uh, it really turned me around in terms of my personality yeah just just feeling more- Confident
1: with yourself and... Confident.
0: I had to learn Japanese. I had to exist in this whole environment where I had no support network. I had to build my own. Um, it, you know, nobody spoke English. Um, you had to learn new culture, new you know, new ways of doing things. Japanese are wonderful people and very welcoming, but still you're you're afloat in a whole other culture. And you're cut off. In those days, there was no, no internet. There was no... Phoning home was really not an option. It was too expensive. i just write letters once a month and mm. get a letter from my mother. That would be it. Yeah. So It was like the old world... Like the old school, hey, you're you're overseas. You're really overseas. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the world's different now. You're much yeah, more connected than we used to be. Did you?
1: Uh, so, what did you study? Like, did you?
0: Well, eventually, I, I spent a couple of years in Japan, and then I went uh, to university. I went to a few universities, uh, and and I wound up getting a degree in Asian history at, at university. So, I spent time in Japan and China.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, and did you go into tech? Did you like it was tech an early <coughs> thing, or was that no, not overseas? at all? Um, excuse me. Tech did not play a role at all.
0: In fact, excuse me, I had an aversion to the sciences and to maths. Uh, I was good at maths, I was good at science, but I didn't enjoy it. Um, I enjoyed um, the arts, liberal arts, uh, Mm -hmm. literature, reading, history, I loved history, music, I played instruments. Um, But I was not uh, attracted to the sciences or mathematics. And the days when I went to university, I remember. Uh, like mechanical engineering was a big thing. This was like the early 80s. Like it was a big, everybody wanted to be a mechanical engineer. My brother did mechanical engineering. And I just, I just thought, I can't think of anything more horrible than those two words put together, mm. than mechanical engineering. I had no interest whatsoever. So ironically, my whole university career was, was spent avoiding tech and maths <laughs> and you know and science. Yeah. It, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was getting away from it.
1: Um, and I came to tech later in my life. Mm. So, what what's, what are some of the, I guess, critical career steps that got to the point where you did get into tech? Wow. Uh,
0: probably, one I think tech came to me a bit. Um, I think in those days you had to go and find tech. My brother, yeah. my brother actually was very techy, He'd sit in his room and, you know, he'd say, "Hey, come into my room, check this out." And he had built, you know, a computer, or he'd he'd hacked a TV set and done something mm. with the TV screen, and he had all kinds of electronics uh, projects going on he was he was a uh, he was kind of a bill gates kind of style guy building his yeah. own tech and so that. how did tech find you so for me i wasn't interested in that and it was only a few years later when i wound up uh in my late 20s i went to business school i got an mba i came out and i got a job in consulting management consulting and then tech tech was just kind of rising as a force in business in those days this was sort of the mid-90s right um and, and so, you know, this was like ERP systems and big technology. And, and so I, I, I was sort of exposed to it. And then by, by the time we got to the late 90s or the 2000s, I wound up in a job where um, most of my job did not involve technology. But I was allowed to kind of carve out a section of my job where I could focus uh, kind of at my own without anybody looking over my shoulder on sort of uh, new tech, um, the Internet, uh, you know, e-commerce. This was the late 90s. And so I started to build these little businesses and I started to learn about technology from a business perspective. And then in the next few years after that, I did a, I, I did a few uh, startups in between corporate roles. I built a couple, I, I rolled up my sleeves and built a couple of technology businesses and, and got in, you know, into the dirt with the engineers. And the and the coders mm-hmm. myself um, you know and, and learned how to build technology
1: from scratch. It was more the fascination with business, it was and, and growing our yeah. business than it is the technology. Almost technology is an enabler of exactly. The it's, what,
0: what, it's what it's what what can you do with the technology to solve a business problem mm. or c- to create value for a, a user or, or a customer? That's what I'm more interested in. I'm not as interested in the in the gizmo. Te- I mean, you look at me now, you, you, folks listening can't hear, but you know, I, I don't wear. Uh, I don't have a watch. Mm. Uh, I, my phone is, you know, I obviously have an iPhone, but I don't get the latest one when it comes out. I'm, I'm not really obsessed by gadgets mm. and technology. I've worked with people, particularly at place like Facebook. They, they have the latest stuff. Set it on. Yeah, the newest Apple Watch. Account, bam, they have it. You know, they've got the latest headsets. They've got the latest everything. Me, I'm, I'm not as driven by gadgetry. I'm more interested in how technology can solve problems mm. for people.
1: Hmm. I've heard, heard conversation, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, or read articles about how a lot of people in Silicon Valley or other places involved in tech or, or the business side of tech uh, often have dumb fa- phones, or they actually kind of, uh, uh, kind of almost sort of use tech for what it's for. <laughs> is, it, is that right, or is, uh, I th- or depends. Or, or, look, it, it, look, it's a general. That's a big,
0: big generalisation. There's a lot of people yeah, I, I can say this I, myself, and I know some other folks in from silicon valley background like my, like myself we tend to opt out of technology a lot more than average people do um so for example um, i'm i'm very good at turning off my phone and setting it aside and i find just uh, your, your average puncher isn't as good at doing that mm-hmm. and and so I'm, I'm much more aware i, I feel of 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 keeping technology from invading my space, mm. that distraction. Of exactly, that it's a tool I want to use, and there's something I want to interface with, but I want to be in control of it. Mm. I, I'm not big on having it invade my space. So, for example, I mean, since I've left Facebook, I don't spend a lot of time on on Facebook or Instagram or social media, because to be honest with you, I don't find it valuable time. Mm. Um, I'm interested in it from a you know an intellectual point of view about well, hey, what's happening with the platforms? I help build the platforms. You know, what's you know what's going on. But I'm not so interested in spending an hour looking at photos from my friends and going through my feed because that hour to me, I'd rather be spending with Mm. a a real human being like yourself, Jason. I I don't want to be spending it just, you know, watching vicariously
1: what's going on in the world. It's just, it's not me. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big trends. You talked about the curiosity about where things are going. I think a lot of people are saying, I'm addicted to this and I... I it's too much or it's absorbing too much of my life or I just get lost in this social media. So people, I think, are becoming more and more aware that just like you get addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be, you can get addicted to your phone. And it, yeah, it's. it's and,
0: and I, I, I'm not an expert on addiction. I think yeah, others, yeah. others our know, you know, scientists and researchers are much more, uh, can speak more eloquently about that. But I think th- there's all kinds of things that take up our time that are not, but you look back and go, why did I spend my time doing that? And for example, I can remember I lived in Toronto many years ago, and I was obsessed by this. There was a sports uh, radio station in Toronto. This was like decades ago, and I listened to it all the time. And I would just sit there and listen, and they were talking about you know ice hockey and and, uh, and Canadian football and stuff. And I was just I was just listening, and I would at the end of the day, I go like I spent like three hours listening to this damn radio station. Why was that with those three hours I, I should could have used differently and eventually I was like I, I got rid of my radio um, this was back at the radio desk. I was like I get rid of my radio I don't want to be listening to this thing mm. all the time so I don't think it's only um, social media that gets us to this there's all kinds of things that get us hooked and it's our you know our minds are looking for ways of kind of being distracted or being uh, you know, being getting dopamine hits. Mm. So there's different. There's always been different ways this happens. Unfortunately, now it is so much more in the in the palm yeah. of our hand. But having that so
1: that 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 self awareness of knowing, well, I'm the type of person that will want to get absorbed to that. So I'll I'll make make decisions to to not do that. Yeah, yeah. and, and self control. It yeah. adds
0: to the list of things you know that we already have to deal with being co- in control of. You know, don't drink too much alcohol, yeah. and make sure I get enough sleep, and don't eat too much uh, junk food. And you know, we all have things that we're trying to control in ourselves and the lives of our families yeah. to make sure that we, have a,
1: that we have a healthy life and now we add technology yeah, to it okay i'm going to jump to your uh time at f- facebook so md facebook australia is that right MD australia new zealand new zealand and, new specifically zealand. Specifically. and, and, and also instagram um uh, Facebook. I'm not sure if they still do. They use a, a line, as I understand it, uh, "move move fast and break things." Is that is that the right? Yeah. Is that still a, or is that is like, what, what does that mean in terms of organisation like a Facebook? And we talk? I guess I'll, I'll couch that in. A lot of organisations talk about being innovative, but in reality, they're probably not. In a Facebook context, where they are, I assume they're, they're, they're innovative, like moving fast and breaking things.
0: What yeah. Mean? So. You know, here we are, it was sitting here in two thousand nineteen and Move Fast and Break Things doesn't have quite the same heroic happy connotations that it had just a few years ago. So uh because of many of the problems Facebook has run into mm-hmm. in the past couple of years. Um, during my time at Facebook it was still a bit the kind of happy days of Move Fast and Break Thing was a good was a good thing. Mm. Um it's it's an old mantra, uh old. I mean Facebook's around for fifteen years so it's not that old. But it was one in the early days of Facebook it was one of Mark's uh, I think Mark probably came up with it, uh, which basically said, "It is what it says." We have to move fast, so fast that we're breaking stuff. If you're not breaking things, you're not moving fast enough. And breaking something is a bit metaphoric, but it's mm-hmm. the idea is that you know w- we need to just be in a, in a moving so quickly that nobody can keep up with mm-hmm. us. You know that, and we and, and if we, we fail a bit on the on the it, wire, it, fail a bit that on that the guy, side, yeah. who, who cares? Yeah. Um, uh, I got to say, from, Mark did change that in about 2015 to. We did it internally. It was a bit of a almost an internal joke, but we moved from move fast and break things to what less sexy. It was, it was move fast and build stable infrastructure. And <laughs> the reason he brought that in was he said, when you have millions, billions of people depending on you, and thousands, and millions of customers giving you money to you know to run ads, you don't want things to break anymore. Mm-hmm. You know you can't have that. Uh, you can't have things breaking for paying customers and, and, yeah, and okay. users who rely on you. So it's like, no, we need to build stability, not just break things. But I think there is something in the Facebook culture about um, – and Silicon Valley, many Silicon Valley companies about just
1: moving so quickly that you're almost, you know, you're knocking into the furniture. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So what were some of the lessons you took out of your time or observations of a Facebook or the likes in terms of – or even even since – of what makes a, an innovative, creative organization?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is uh, a huge question, and there's so many different um, aspects to it. it, it so one is an innovative creative organization can be a can be a business that's born today right born from scratch um, or it can be a business that you've got a retrofit that's been around for a hundred years right mm. and there's different types and levels of innovation right there's product innovation there's process innovation there's uh, there's people innovation there's there's all kinds of ways to innovate and bring new ideas into a business. What I would say about facebook um, and and history is always written by the winners. I should be uh, clear here. You know, there's plenty of innovative businesses, really innovative businesses in, the, in Silicon Valley and other parts of the world that we're not talking about now because they've failed. They're gone. Um, and they may have failed for reasons that not, had nothing to do with their level of innovation. They, they just ran out of money. They had bad luck. They wound up in the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. But there's lots of great innovative businesses that we don't talk about. Facebook happens to be one that was successful, and, and maybe kind mm-hmm. of a bit of that is luck. A bit of it is also you know, smart decisions and innovation. But the thing I'd say about the innovation at Facebook is maybe a couple things that are interesting. So one is um, I think Facebook has really spent a lot of time and effort thinking about what it doesn't want to be and the kind of culture it doesn't want to build and the types of things it doesn't want people to do. And it's almost like a counterintuitive way of thinking about things. So one is just to say, hey, these are all the things we want our business to be and do, et cetera. Facebook spends a lot of time thinking about what is it we don't want to do? If you see, Amazon does the same thing in its own way. Google, in a sense, does the same thing. They make this, they kind of make an anti-company, an anti-culture that they don't want to be like. Uh, and by doing that, it. it it allows the business to have a way of communicating to people that this is not not only just what we want to be; it's this is what we don't want to be.
1: Is that ad- identifying a, um, I guess perhaps in a, in a new business, perhaps not identifying a business out there that already exists that we want to be the direct opposite? Yes. Or is the, it sometimes about a, a theoretical? Yeah, it's not out.
0: always about pointing at others. Although I should say in Silicon Valley, this is almost it's almost, uh, it's almost a, a running joke that you know if you work at Google, you point at Microsoft, and you say we don't want to be like Microsoft, They're too bureaucratic. I think Steve
1: Jobs used to do that, didn't he? he On well, yeah. Well, if you work Apple, at, we don't want to be Microsoft. If, or... if you work at
0: Facebook, you point at Google, and you say yeah. we don't want to be like Google, it's too bureaucratic. If you work at Snapchat, you point at Facebook, and you say we don't want to be like Facebook, They're yeah, too, too yeah. bureaucratic. There's somebody else who point at <laughs> Snapchat and say the same thing. I mean, it's all in the eye of the holder. and. And you could argue that some of those businesses kind of lost some of their innovation mojo, although I think Microsoft's gotten it back in the past couple of years under its new leadership. Um, So that's one thing. It's about kind of creating the kind of anti-culture and then saying, we don't want to be that. Um, I think the second thing I'd say is there's a... There's this thing in Silicon Valley, which I think outsiders don't fully understand, and I didn't understand until I really spent time there, which is, I think the most successful businesses there... They spend more time focusing on people and culture and leadership than any other business I've worked for, which seems ironic when you go to a place where technology is at the center of what they do. The truth is, as important as technology is, people are more important. The culture you build is more important than the, peop- than the, uh, than the technology. And, and so, at the likes of Facebook or Google... Um, you spend a lot of time on people and culture, uh, more time than any com- company I've ever worked for, almost ridiculous amounts of time. Does that kind
1: of sit at the, towards the top of the pyramid? It's across gonna... the whole organization. Yeah, okay.
0: From Mark, and Facebook is from yeah. Mark on down. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's culture surveys. Every company does culture surveys, right? You survey people. Yeah. Some do it monthly, some do it annually. They have different names in different companies. At Facebook, it was called Pulse. And Pulse was done every six months. It was a company-wide survey uh, voluntary. Um, it was broken into different sections about company, about um, your job, about your manager, um, these sorts of uh, areas. There was about twenty, thirty questions on this survey, and we did it every six months. And would measure the, you know difference between now and the last survey. We would measure the difference between every group within the organization. You would get a, if you had if your team was big enough, uh, you would get a pulse survey for your own team, um, and so. Many companies do this, right? Facebook would... Inevitably, Facebook would always have a unique way of doing something like this. And the unique way that Facebook would do it was, um, well, one, all the results, every result was open to everybody in the company. There was essentially just... It was all just published on a portal. And so you could go in and compare yourself to all kinds of other leaders in the business, all kinds of other business units. You could see Mark's results.
1: You could see... You, know, Mark would see so Mark you could see result. what Mark said about the... Well, you could scan you'd scan. see Mark's
0: score. You'd yeah. see, like, how did Mark go? How did... You wouldn't see what people an said. An aggregate score, like they would it, see the yeah, aggregate score yeah. for Mark. Yeah, you would see the aggregate score for all kinds of businesses. You could compare yourself across. So Mark got a
1: no, no, It's probably not done on this, but Mark got an yeah, aggregate score of got, eighty or whatever. It exactly. Might be. Yeah, okay, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And you see where and Mark was seventy. Saying. Why is that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you'd see where Mark was strong and weak? Yeah. You would see uh, it, it, there was levels of, of data that wasn't released because it's private, but there's the, the aggregate numbers were all, all open to everybody. And it wasn't just, hey, this is an interesting thing. We would spend weeks on this data and weeks on the results. And then we would spend weeks on actually devising strategies to deal with the weaknesses that we found
1: in... Weaknesses like what? The, what's, what's the weakness that you might find at a... At well, the, the irony is if
0: somebody was new at Facebook and they, they were, they'd been there a few months and they went through their first culture survey, they would, always, they would often laugh because the scores would be astronomically high. Everybody at, in those days loved working at Facebook and you know, thought it was the best company on earth and they couldn't think of working anywhere else and they loved Facebook's mission, they loved Mark, they loved... You know, and many people came from companies where... It, the, the, there wasn't that kind of joy at working for the company. So they would laugh. Because we would, f- across all these these unbelievable, ugh, super high scores we would get, we would always find a couple of things that would be lower. Even those lower ones weren't that bad. But mm-hmm. the Facebook would focus like crazy on those couple of lower things to try to make mm-hmm. them better. So th- during my time there, it was pretty consistent. The same things would turn up as being the things we were less good on. And they were around... Um, how individuals did their jobs. And they were specifically around, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the question. I think the question, one, one statement of question was, uh, um, do you have enough resources to do your job? Um, and I think the second one was, um, do, you, you know, do you have the right tools to do your job? Resources and tools being a couple different things. And Facebook, and we would inevitably, almost across the business, score a little lower on that measure. And the reason was we asked people to do so much and we were moving so fast. That people felt like I, I always need more people, I need more tools, I need more resources. Uh, but in a sense, I that was
1: breaking things.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but it was, in a sense, that was the that was the culture Facebook was trying to build, which was we want you to be a little stressed. We don't want you to have enough resources. We want you to be resourceful and getting by with a little less, hmm. because if you give you too much, bureaucracy creeps in, and we don't want bureaucracy. We don't want things to slow down. We want to keep things moving fast. So it was like it's like it's like going. You know, if you uh, if you go to the gym, no pain, no gain, right? It's like you don't go to the gym and just sit there and you know and push one one kilo. You you push weight until Mm -hmm. you fail because you you're trying to build Mm -hmm. yourself up. Well, it's got to hurt a little. So, in a sense, that when you build a culture, there's something in it that's it's good to have it hurt a little Mm -hmm. to make sure that actually people are at the envelope. Mm -hmm. So we'd always say if 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 we were ever really high on that number, it was a bad thing because we want to keep people a little. We want to keep them kind
1: of scrapping and scraping to be uh, to to, mm-hmm. to make to make the most of a, of, of yeah. limited resources. And obviously, there's the rewards there and the perks that outside of a, a, a tech juggernaut like Facebook almost seems amusing or probably not, not achievable. Like that. simple things, like I guess a free lunch. But then it gets what are some of the sort of things that you might have as a, a perk of working at a, at a Facebook? That, yeah, I mean, and these, these are
0: common across a lot of Silicon Valley companies, yeah. not just Facebook, but things like. Um, you know, food is free. Um, you know, essentially there's food on campus that's, yeah. that's free for everybody. Um, you can bring your family in and they can eat too. Um, there's plenty of families yeah. that turn up at Facebook for dinner. Um, transportation in Silicon Valley tends to be subsidized or, or free. Google has their own bus network. Facebook's got their own company-owned bus network that take people into you know, San Francisco and back. Um, even things like dry cleaning and laundry, uh, health insurance, um, they're now bringing in perks like um egg freezing if you want to have an ivf baby and and that's a that seems crazy but it's actually practical because particularly women at a certain age they you know they 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 might want to take time out of the workforce to have a baby well facebook's trying to say hey you have the option you can do it now or you can wait a few years and we'll help you we'll help you do it um there's a practical uh, and a lot of this stuff is driven not just by um hey, these are great perks to give. And they've become a bit of a perk war in Silicon Valley. You know, who's got the best food? Or, But a lot of it was just practical. If you've been to Silicon Valley and you drive around, you'll notice it's just it's sprawling and mm-hmm. massive. And these, and it's not like there's no uh, skyscrapers in Silicon Valley. It's all these low-rise, um, you know, three- or four-story buildings that just spread out for, for acres. Mm-hmm. And so if you, at Facebook, you know, there's uh, probably today there's probably... Let's say 15,000, 20,000 people at Facebook's head office. If you told all of them, hey, it's time for lunch, uh, they all to get in their cars and drive because there's no – you can't walk out the door and, and walk to a restaurant. You've got to drive someplace. Yeah, okay. And so you can't get 15,000 people leaving. So That's, it's a practicality. It's practical. Than, uh, right? They can't all get in their cars and drive away because guess what? They won't be back mm. in 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, it's practical. You have to supply food mm. on campus. It's a practical measure. And you can't charge for it because if you charge for it, people will get in their car yeah. and drive away. So it's got to be free and it's got to be really good mm. to keep people there because you don't want 15,000 people trying it's to it's about leave. attraction, retention, practicality. It's, it's a mix of those yeah. things. Yeah. But I think the, the, the original thing was
1: practicality. You yeah. just need to supply food or else everybody's going to yeah. drive away. Would, it was interesting just the balance of that of going, you want... You want your staff to work hard. Do you want your staff to stay longer if they can? Or yeah, you I want your would, staff to achieve? Say, or, or, yeah, be or, or, or audacious goals and all those sort of things there? But. I wouldn't say it's working harder. Um, but I would say this. I think,
0: I think what Silicon Valley companies have realized, and it's something that I think businesses around the world are, trying to figure, are starting to figure out, is that the most valuable commodity in your business is human capital. You hire a lot of powerful smart brains to come in and do stuff. And if you can remove some of the, the 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 crap from those brains, so they don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about where you're going to get lunch. It's just there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about if you're hungry. There's all these snack stations at Facebook or Google, etc. You're not supposed to be. They design their campuses so you're never more than about 75 meters from a snack station. Which is, I'm hungry right now. You go to the snack station. The food's all free. You just grab and go. And, you know, it's not that, oh, that's a perk. It's just, it's practical. It's just like, get the food into you, go back to work. Why? Because you're paying these people hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for their minds. Not for them to go and have to, you know, worry Mm. about what food am I, where am I going to buy lunch? Um, Where am I going to get my laundry done? Facebook provides free laundry because they don't want you to worry about your laundry. Just. Mm. That's the lowest value thing. They give free, free transportation because they don't want you to worry about how you're going to get to work. Yeah, we want you to get here as efficiently and as easily and as comfortably as possible, because once you're here, you're with your colleagues, you're collaborating, you're working together, you're, you're changing the world, mm. and that's why all these companies. Yeah, come. and you don't tend to get staff abusing those mm. privileges no, it's there. Per- no, yeah.
1: It's pretty hard to abuse. I don't. I was never inside that. Yeah. Uh, I'm do, sure there's some. Yeah. There's somebody might we, we do work for a chocolate company, and you're allowed to eat as much chocolate as you like. But I think it takes a very short period before the staff start saying, "Start saying, I don't want any more chocolate." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, it's, it's But maybe you get you go. Well, it's there, and it makes my job more efficient. I think that. I think the truth is, and uh, look, a lot of these businesses in Silicon Valley, it's it, you just have to do it. It's like everybody does it. So it's like
0: a it's a minimum requirement. But yeah. the truth is the cost of doing it is so low. It's, is, it's not yeah. something to In work. the whole scheme of things. In the scheme yes. of things, it's meaningless, yeah. right? It's absolutely, it's
1: a rounding error, so nobody cares. How do you have high-performing staff? And that could be high-performing young staff or older staff, it doesn't really matter, but how, how do you ensure your staff are, are going there and they, they want to achieve great things? They want to um, make the world better. They want to, all, all those sort of goals that the likes of Facebook are looking to achieve.
0: Yeah, I think the Silicon Valley businesses like Facebook, they, they do a few things. One is, they have very mission-driven companies, right? Often these days still, at least the current generation of, Facebook, of uh, Silicon Valley companies, are still very um, dominated by their founders, right? <coughs> this is not true of every company in Silicon Valley. Companies like Intel or, um, uh, or Apple, their founders have are passed away, right? So they're not they're, they're, mm-hmm. their founders are gone. But the, the, the aura of their founders in many ways still kind of lives on, even though it gets dissipated. But the likes of Facebook and Google, uh, Uber, the founders are still in the building, right? They're still they're still every day. They may not be running the company on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis, but they're still there. Yeah. And so there's something around the founder is there. It's their mission to build this company. And now this company is like a, you know, a multi-billion, $100 billion. There's a lot of um, power in the vision of the founder and the and the culture that they're trying to build, which draws people to those businesses draws other talent mm-hmm. to come and want to work and, and be on that mission. So you get a lot of people in Silicon Valley who really believe in the mission of their, of their particular business, whoever they're, they're working for. And, and it's a very strong, it's not, it's not bullshit. It's mm-hmm. people really believe in the mission of Google at mm-hmm. Google. They really believe in the mission of Apple at Apple. They really believe in that. And that is a huge competitive differentiator for any company. If you can get people to really believe in your vision and your mission, You are going to get differential
1: effort, and I'm assuming if you see progress towards achieving that as well, if if staff have a vision they believe in, but they can also see whatever those indicators. Yeah, and you're lucky and Silicon Valley because things can
0: change fast. So you can, you know, Facebook's around for 15 years, so and is, you know, over two billion people on Facebook every day. Like that's pretty good progress in 15 years from nothing to two billion. Most companies would dream of that. Google probably similar kind of nothing to amazing impact. Amazon a little longer. Apple uh, has had more ups and downs, but Apple is also Uh, Uber just started what you know uh, ten years ago or so. Now you look at look at where Mm -hmm. Uber is. Mm -hmm. So all these businesses not only have the mission. You're right. Like people see the results, um, and they feel like hey, I'm part of something that's really changing the world, um, and you know, and and it's delivering on this mission. So I think that's one thing to preserve the culture. Um, (coughs) The other is just constant infusions of of values, um, every one of these businesses will have values that they hold very dear. You mentioned one before: move fast and base break things is essentially one of Facebook's five core values, and they get really ha- you know, hammered into the into people in a good way. But they're, they're, they're represented inside these businesses in in physical ways, and posters on the walls, and how people talk, and how people deport themselves, and how leaders on how leaders present themselves. The values are really lived so if you and if you can align those values with the values of of employees they 're not just "Hey, we have these values over here, you may not agree with them, but hey, you know uh, we want you to believe in them If you can align them with the values that that your people actually uh, sh- share in their own hearts that 's what 's super powerful yeah okay. um, and so the the culture. What Facebook and these other companies try to do is they try to bring in
1: people that essentially share already share the yeah. values. So that's a filter at the start when you're recruiting people. Correct. Yeah. They they share those. Obviously the competencies are there, but also yeah. Those I wouldn't call it values. a
0: filter, but it's a very it's a big build on yeah. you know. Hey, you might be great at coding, but uh, you know, but how are you going to fit into the Facebook culture based on you know the, your values and the
1: Facebook values? Are they going to yeah. be congruent? Would they? Is that going through exercises? Is it is it. Is it obviously posting questions to potential recruits around that. I think um,
0: during my time at Facebook, it was very n- a non-scientific process. It yeah, was okay. essentially just interview with a lot of Facebook people and they'll, yeah, okay. all kind of look you up and down and say, yeah, you, you, you know, you'll be a face, you'll, you'll so be interview by people
1: who believe, uh, very strongly believe in those, that vision and, and almost critiquing on those. Questions.
0: Yeah. Well, in the early, early days of Facebook, Facebook used to run um, when I joined Facebook though, I, I, had 16 interviews I think before I yeah, joined wow, the company okay. And so everybody interviews you. It was 360 interviews. The people who will work for you interview, your bosses will uh, interview, people who will look alongside you interview. Since Facebook has grown, they, they've done away with that system because it's not scalable. You can't hire thousands of people having 16 interviews per person. Now they've reduced it to a more manageable number. They've gotten more scientific about it. I think they, they're using more psychometric testing and stuff. It's yeah, okay. more mainstream. When I was at Facebook, there was none of that stuff. Yeah. It was very uh, – they just brought that in towards the end of my time.
1: Yeah. And clearly they're looking to find people with the right competencies as well. So balancing competencies versus beliefs. Yeah, I think
0: – even, even probably, I'm not, I don't run HR at Facebook or recruiting, no. but I think even the comp, I did hire a lot of people though, um, hundreds of people. And even, even the word competency, I don't mm-hmm. think was quite right. I know, I know that you're just choosing that. I think that we used to look for your ability to drive impact. Yeah. Okay. was probably the number one thing we would look for. And. That could have to do with what you're already competent at, but often it had more to do with what your fundamental talents were. Mm. You know, you you may have very little background in a certain technical area or something, but you're being a quick learner is super important. If you can learn fast, be adaptable, work, be able to work in teams collaboratively, and hustle, like. Tick 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 tick. It almost doesn't matter what you're going to do. If we can bring you in, if you have the ability to learn quickly, you can do lots of stuff. Yeah. And so, looking for that ability to learn fast is probably one of the key th- key things that all Silicon Valley companies look for, because they know the job you hire for today, we hire you for today, actually, may be gone tomorrow. We're going to wind up. You're going to wind up doing something completely different because we're going to stop doing that and start doing this. And so, if you're always trying to hire people just to match them with the, the, the jobs, you, you you're going to have a very inefficient way of of, of building your business. You need to hire people for their innate ability to be flexible and to learn. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that,
1: you'll have an organisation
0: that can go in any direction. Yeah. Okay. That's great.
1: This is not necessarily about Facebook, the next question I'm about to ask. But I shared something on LinkedIn, it could have been end of last week, but I talked about it was just an observation of different organisations, government and, and corporate, of the blurring between i guess culture having a really strong culture but also you easily can become only a small line sometimes to becoming a cult like and from a positive culture to a negative cult um some could say that facebook's a little bit like that but what's what's your sort of thought observations on when an organization goes the culture is so strong that it's actually not positive it's actually a negative cult
0: yeah that's a very interesting line of uh, discussion because I think not enough of us understand the dynamics of cults, right? It's almost like a word that we throw around, but do we? Do any of us really understand what a cult is and how mm-hmm. it works? And even I don't understand. But my my kind of definition might be that it's it's where it's where the people who are involved in the cult are driven to make self harming or non-rational decisions or actions because they're so influenced by a a, an ethos of the Mm. cult right yep um that's how i would define it like Mm -hmm. that's the line that gets crossed like if you're doing things that are kind of harmful harmful to yourself or to others um and i'm not saying like you know physically harmful but just there's some line that gets crossed Mm. and i think that you could start to say as a Cult that's because uh, cults de- generally, cult is not a good term. It's not like hey, right. there's a good cult, and a cult. I'm, I'm sure a cult
1: doesn't call themselves a cult <laughs> no. either. I mean, and they, and they, uh,
0: they're like the dead, the grateful dead yeah. had a cult, uh, yeah. maybe that's the happy good cults, yes. you know, uh, they yeah. take a few drugs, but um, but yeah, so there's and, and cults people that's don't right. tell, call uh, and I think people generally,
1: whether it's politic politics or, or within a commercial sense, um, they people. People hunger for strong leaders. Strong leaders that can show them the way, and that could be due to due to insecurity on an individual side, or just just wanting strong leaders that can sort of show us a better way. Um, and That could be religious, or it could be it could be sort of from, from a business side. But yeah, yeah. When when do you kind of see it? Maybe kind of going. Maybe. Facebook probably an example, or, or others where where it kind of goes. It maybe was the culture, and then you sort of start going. Well, from an outsider's perspective, anyway, of when does say an individual, and you don't have to refer to like a Facebook, could be anything, where it gets so strong, you go, "Wow, that's that's um, not necessarily a cult, but just but, but just like it can. It's not yeah, always. Yeah, positive. I mean,
0: we're we're touching on this because of, of facebook 's an obvious candidate to mm. question. You know, is how much of it is a company, how much is a culture, and then and, and is it veering into cult territory? Mm. And there's you know, there's not a lot of companies in the world like that, probably. Mm. I mean, Apple might be another one, particularly in Steve Jobs' that's day, right? right? He, he, had, he had almost a messianic uh, presence and ability to kind of convince right. people to do things that they maybe otherwise didn't want to do. Apparently, Steve Jobs was not the most pleasant person to work that's with wrong. or for, but still, people would come back and work with him that's repeatedly. Um, so that was one. I, th- I think there's something, there is something in Silicon Valley that's, Perhaps unique about this cult thing, um, if it is a cult thing. And I think there's a couple of factors that drive it. So one is that a lot of these, and, and it's not just Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. We could probably sit here and come up mm-hmm. with a list of others probably that are less famous outside of Silicon Valley. But within Silicon Valley, they have their own kind of cultures following. Um, but I think there's a few characteristics. So one is that a lot of them arrive at this point of... Uh, well, one one they'll have big dreams, right? They'll have mm. big big visions, right? And they they can be very good at communicating and driving those visions. That's one. Two is they tend to reach get to success uh, very young, um, or at least success as other people would perceive it to be. You know, they mm-hmm. become wealthy, or they become po- relatively powerful. Or they're sitting on top of a big companies, and sometimes they can be in their twenties you know, or thirties. So, mm-hmm. so a young success um, in and the third is. Uh, technology still has a certain magic to it. Mm. I think it's a... If you go back, you know, you'll go back 100, 200 years, and you, you look at who were the charlatans of the world. They were almost always charlatans that somehow there was some form of technology or science involved with what mm. they did, right? Mm-hmm. They, they had some uh, magic medicine that you could take, or they had some sort of, uh, you know, mechanical Turk that did something. Or there was there was something of this fascination about, with, about science and technology that almost has a magical quality to it. Mm. And we've been there for hundreds of years. Now it's been kind of personified in the Silicon Valley, young, you know, great, great vision communicator and then having lots of success around technology, mm. which many people, even within Silicon Valley, don't fully grasp, you know, mm. how does Facebook work, how does Google work, what, what does it really do? And so you look at these people and you say, wow, they're like, there's a form of genius to them that we that we don't fully understand and then n- they're not just a genius they become incredibly rich and successful mm. so we've kind of grafted the capitalists and then the and then the intellectual together mm. it's unique there's not a lot of people like this not a lot of places in the world that no, have right. created these sorts of people so there is this that's already exists in silicon valley there's been the cult of andy groves at intel there's been the cult of uh, steve jobs at 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 at, at apple uh, the cults of uh, Sergey and Larry, who founded Google. I mean, these guys are gods. Mm-hmm. Then along comes the, you know, likes of Mark Zuckerberg. He's just in a sense, he's just following in the footsteps of uh, of these other um, cult leaders who came before. And you know, Mark's got his own unique story and his own unique um, um, characteristics. But in a way, they fit the same mm. pattern: young, successful, early genius, uh, you, know, mm. you know,
1: wealthy, and. And a kind of black box of technology, and, and may I'm I'm guessing that many of them would have may have started off more introverted than extroverted and worked on their thing, and then the, maybe their confidence is built built with success. Is, is that <coughs> excuse me from Mark? I range. think that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. I think the, just yeah, the way he presents himself is clearly he's he's not seen as a tech geek anymore. He's a very like, strong and confident speaker when he when he needs to. Yeah, and he,
0: he's he, uh, I know that he uh, personally that he has done a lot to work on that. Yeah. You know, he's he's had to reinvent himself as mm-hmm. an extrovert I and mean, he's not an extrovert he's an introvert um, and I think we shouldn't under- underestimate the fact that you know Mark came of age in an era w- when we were looking for these tech um, gods mm-hmm. we'd already had our Steve Jobs and we'd had our you know all, all these success stories we needed the new wave and you know? he was yeah. part of this new wave yeah. and in a way he was even more outrageous know, he was even more outrageously un, unlikely, mm. you know, because he was—he founded the world's biggest social network. Yet he's an introverted geek who doesn't have many, didn't have any friends, you know. At least that's the impression of him uh, outside. He, you know, he was 19. I mean, he, you know, he could barely shave, and it's still, and he was already, you know, he's a billionaire before he's like 23. Mm. Like this is uh, unheard of riches, you know. It's 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 world world first level of success and And the thing that he invented just seems so simple yet so powerful mm, mm. Or, or that or that his company kind of came up with facebook and and, and of course then it it plays a role in millions of people's everyday lives. It's not something that's you know I could tell you about you know Larry Ellison the you know the guy who runs or founded Oracle, and one of the people like. Oracle, who's Oracle? Larry yeah. Ellison. He's, he's a little more in the. Yeah, he's in the space people don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. Now he's, but he's one of these. But when is that
1: time like Facebook, where everybody uses, everybody it, knows, changes the, their world? Yeah.
0: I've never. I, I worked at Facebook. And I never had to explain who I work for. Right? It's like, yeah. where, where do you work? Facebook. Oh, I have a Facebook. Mm-hmm. where everybody uses the product. So Mark's almost this kind of, you know, universal uh, presence in everybody's life. And then we shouldn't discount the fact. I mean, from a very early age, he was having books written about him. Um, you know, journalists were writing constant articles about mm-hmm. him. He's on the he cover of Fortune magazine when he's a, yeah. you know, a teenager. He, There was a movie made about him. I mean, you know, let's face it, most of us, by the time we get to 25, don't have books, movies, you know, journalists hiding in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that,
1: I think, added to That's the, right. kind of, the kind so you of... So he had these sort of strong followers and, and almost um, uh, people trying to emulate... Uh, the, the story and how can I do my own Facebook and and, and um, excitement around what it is, but also I don't know, when shit hits the fan, uh, things like the privacy or, or whatever it might have been, I'm, and always I guess assume nobody sets out to do anything bad, but then something goes wrong and then suddenly demonised.
0: Yeah, um, the pendulum
1: has swung on Mark over yeah. the past two years. Uh, it's been quite quite amazing. Do you, was like just we don't need to kind of get caught up on it, but when like when we talk about the privacy things and from an outsider's perspective or different commentators have said, well, they knew this was like happening and they were profiting from it and it was just only a moment of time. Um, was that the case or is it more about going, it's just like how all of that yeah, sort of the, unfolded or...? to sort of not get too involved in the detail, um,
0: I Facebook has driven... It's the business into a a white space. So the business model is driven into a white space that had a couple of big characteristics to it. One, and that white space is essentially advertising that's, that goes on top of media, mm-hmm. right? So one characteristic is that space was enormously inefficient. So, uh, but there was but wildly wildly profitable for the operators who were operating on TV newspapers you know tv networks newspapers particularly they made a lot of money based on something that was actually pretty primitive and pretty inefficient for the people buying the ads so you know if you, you 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 how many times have you sat watching tv and you've seen the same ad for a toyota hilux 25 times and you're never going to buy a toyota hilux a million mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. toyota is paying to show you that ad even though it doesn't want to show you that mm-hmm. ad and the reason is that tv is just a big dragnet that throws they throw over the boat and they just get, every fish gets into it tv has built an unbelievably powerful business model based on that undifferentiated It doesn't know who you are it's just going to show you an ad yeah. it shows everybody the same ad at the same time facebook comes along and drives this whole business model into that and completely blows it up which is around no we know exactly who you are because you are the, you are your authentic self on facebook you tell us everything about yourself we then combine that with all kinds of other data that we brought together, and now we can show you. You can show we can allow an advertiser to show an ad just to the person they want to talk to at the right point in time, and then we can even tell you what that person did after they saw the ad, which is which is the second part to, to close the loop. Mm. And Facebook can do that not just with a hundred or a thousand people; it can do it across billions of people. Um, that becomes so. That's the one thing that drove into now. The second characteristic of that space was it essentially was unregulated, so traditional media had. a regulation kind of tied around it, uh, particularly around um, uh, broadcast content and newspapers. You know, there's things they can publish and can't publish. There's things that they, you know, here in Australia, you've got local content rules about how much Australian content you have to have. You've got rules about, you used to have rules about who could own what assets in what cities, newspapers, TVs, mm-hmm. radio stations. Facebook went into this space, and essentially because it was an internet platform, it was unregulated, so it wasn't. Um, and it's just because regulators hadn't thought about it, caught up with it, hadn't thought through the business models. And Facebook and Mark got into that space and said, "Great, let's build this business uh, before the regulators catch up to us." Yeah. Now, okay. yeah. Uber has done the same thing uh, with uh, with ride sharing. Essentially, has gone into a lot of cities and said, "Hey, we're just going to build. We're going to flood this market with Uber." And then the the the, the, the 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 local authorities finally catch up with Uber and say, "Wait, you know, we need to." We mm. need to license you guys. We need to do this. We need to do that, um, and so it's a strategy uh, that any business would follow, right? If you see this, all this money to be made, and you and you have a unique business model that can
1: take advantage, and it's unregulated, you would you yeah. you'd drive like crazy. And, and I guess some of the place. questions come back: people will almost naively suddenly going, "What? You've got our private private data, and you're using it like that?" So I guess they're I guess some of the like around Cambridge Analytica and. Um, the privacy data was it was about um, like the ethics of it rather than the legislation around it <clears throat>
0: correct and yeah. I think the, the I'm not sure it's something Facebook could have fully avoided but you know even inside Facebook you ju- you realize people don't understand how much data they're giving away mm. and it's almost like you wanted to shake people and say y- y- you need to understand this because there's going to come a day when you're going to come to the realization you're go, oh my god what have I been doing and and in a, in a way, when you're a business like Facebook, you don't want people to have the, oh, my God, what am I doing moment. You want to, you want to, you want to educate them along the way mm. because otherwise you get the huge backs, backlash. And I think Facebook's now getting the backlash for the fact that people didn't really understand what they were doing. And today, we, even today we don't understand. You, if I asked you who has what data about you and what are they doing with it, yeah, I, I, you would I say, know, yeah. I have no yeah, idea. That's right. Right, and, you, and then you have kind
1: of, I guess, almost creepy ways in which ads are presented yeah. to you because you went to a random website, and, and it's not just ads; it's all it's
0: all kinds yeah, of organizations. Right. The, everybody from the government to the ATO to private sector companies to uh, to uh, healthcare providers mm. to doctors. There's data on you everywhere, yeah. and the question is, who who knows what about me, and what are they doing with doing with yeah. it? But yeah.
1: none of us have the answer to that question.
0: That's a bad place for all of us to be. I think so. And, and I think I think the
1: general, because we're, we're a research company, so my kind of sense is that people assume good and over-assume good. Uh, they, years ago, when they're talking about privacy, when you're signing a bank form, you're kind of almost aware of the, 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 the privacy implica- implications. I think people, the convenience outweighs <laughs> the privacy concerns. So if it's convenient, we're not going to be questioning privacy, we're, we're just assuming bad. So, so I, I guess sort of things like, um, like Facebook or, or whoever, when it starts talking about privacy, I think it brings it to front of front of mind of people to at least start thinking it through. Or or can you not control it? Like, what, what, what's your suggestion to people? I guess just to touch on the point around, can you manage your privacy, your privacy settings oh, on I Facebook? Think, I think the in the next, it, uh, we are at the dawn now, in the next few years, I think
0: every, the, through a combination of regulation Businesses stepping up, like Facebook and others stepping up, and consumers kind of reclaiming their rights. I think uh, you go forward ten years from now, every consumer will have almost every consumer will have a pretty good sense of who knows what about Mm. me and what are they doing with it, Um, because we will have a system for making that happen.
1: In terms of they, they will know what data is out
0: there. Yeah, you'll have an app app on on your phone or whatever device we use at that time, which basically says here's what people know about me, here's what they're doing with it. And you'll have ways of toggling on and off. I want to turn that off, turn that on, turn this on. I'll monetize that. I don't want to monetize that. Yeah, I think the monetization of things
1: is a fascinating one really, isn't it? And right
0: now we... um, Monetization means you know how do you make money out of it. Yeah, that's right. And right now we... what, what, What Facebook users uh, are now starting to understand, and not just Facebook, but other social media, other internet platforms, any ad- particularly any advertising-supported media. Now, this is, true, this is true for television and newspapers for 100 years as well, is that it's free or relatively cheap, right? Newspapers you have to pay, you have to pay for, but TV was you know, free. Free, but it's not free. They're, you're giving them something. So you're giving them either your data or your attention, and that's worth something to yeah. them. Why? Or why? How do you know that? Because they wouldn't give it to you for free yeah. if it wasn't. So we're used to the idea. If somebody walks up to you and says, uh, "You know, here's a pen," um, you know, and you say, "How much?" You go, "Oh, it's ten dollars. Great. Ten dollars pen. Okay." You know that exchange, and you know how long it took you to earn the ten bucks. You also know that hey, ten bucks would buy me two coffees. You know what the, you know what it's worth. But if I said, "Here's a pen," you can pay me in ten dollars, or you can give me data. And then you, then the next, the next question you might have is, well, what data? How much data? The truth is, you don't know the right answer. If uh, wh- what is the answer? How much is ten dollars worth of data? Mm. Of your data, you don't know. But if we go five, ten years, twenty years into the, we'll team, the people might be more. Aware. If I said, okay. give me ten dollars worth of your attention, you can pay me in cash, you can pay me in data, or attention. Yeah. Okay. You'd be like, well, cash, I understand. I understand ten bucks is two coffees, and it takes me X number mm. of minutes to get ten bucks, and these are the other things i have to do ten bucks. Data and attention, I don't understand the trade-offs. I don't understand the price. I wouldn't know how to price that pen in data or attention. That's essentially what we're doing with media. We've been doing it for a long time. It's just now with Facebook, Google, and those, it's it's just gotten to a, a level of sophistication we didn't have with TV and newspapers. Mm. But essentially you were you were you were giving those platforms your attention or your data. Uh, in order to get a subsidized service, if you didn't, if there are no ad, no ads in a newspaper, it wouldn't have been you know fifty cents. It would have cost you five bucks to buy mm, that newspaper. Mm. But the ads help subsidize the classified advertising, particularly. Yeah, okay. um, with free air TV, it was you know hey we'll give it to you for free, but in exchange we got your eyeballs and we're going to jam ads in the, into your favorite show. Yeah. And so and 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 you're going to you know you're not forced to watch the ad, but a lot of people will. They just sit there and watch the ad. Great. Yeah. And guess what? Then if I show you an ad for a car, car sales go up the next week because people march into the into yep. the showrooms. It just happens. So it's like it works. Um, but we didn't understand the, the exchange that we were giving. Now, now with Facebook,
1: it's come to a head. Uh, and you can we're starting to ask the question, well, what is the exchange? Yeah, okay. Uh, we started off with you saying you were curious above all else about, I guess, where we're heading in a positive or negative way. And so we've covered that much as bits of that as we've gone through. Are there any other thoughts on where we are heading?
0: Yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think one. I think one thing that's not considered enough is um, is this rise of, of of systems and platforms that are driven by artificial intelligence, and how those systems or platforms are going to interface with other systems and platforms in the world. So I'll give you an example. Um, there, let's take the U.S. elections in 2016 in the, U, in the U.S. Now, a lot of the um, there's a lot of controversy about that election, right? What did the Russians do? You know, how did they help uh, one candidate or another candidate? Um, what was the role of social media and all that? You know, fake news, filter bubbles, all this sort of stuff. Cambridge Analytica. Okay, there's a lot unpacked there. But if I had to generalize, I would say, well. The, the criticism or the, the, the critique of social media is that um, it was used in a way that kind of disrupted or attempted – it was attempted to be used by a player that Americans think shouldn't have been playing, Russians, to disrupt a democratic process. Got it. Okay. That's sort of the general um, sort of summary. The solution that most people then propose is, well, we need to fix Facebook. Facebook's the problem. We need to make sure that the Russians can't use Facebook and that, you know, this doesn't happen again. My response to that is that's half the answer. The other half of the answer is we need to fix democracy because democracy, which is an analog system, it's not AI driven, is interfacing with an AI system here, which was Facebook. And democracy was not coping well with that interface. So I don't think just the, the, the only answer is, well, we need to fix the AI side of the equation. We need to fix the analog side mm-hmm. of the equation. And in this case, this is just one, one example, but I think it's an important one. I don't think democracy is well-suited to be robust in the 21st century when it's up against AI-driven systems. And, and it's so funny, like we, we almost look at democracy as in Australia and the U.S., it's like it's sacred. It's like, oh, my God, you know, we set up the system and this system has worked for a long time and we're never going to change this system. Mm. That's not how the world works. We're constantly, if we're running a business or, uh, or, or or an organization, you're constantly improving. You're changing things all the time. You're adding technology. You're... You're, you're adding, you're, you're re-engineering processes. You're, you're changing your mix of talent and people. You're reorganizing. You're trying to respond to the changes in the environment and you know, make sure that the business you have today or the organization you have today is, is purpose-built for today's problems and today's environment. Mm-hmm. What you had 20 years ago isn't going to work today. You, know, you, have yeah. to, you have to change it. You have to constantly evolve. But with democracy, we don't. It's like we set and forget. Like in the U.S., we invented uh, the Constitution. was written in 1787. Done. Like, yeah. That's gonna yeah, yeah. and you say to yourself, wait a minute, don't we need to
1: upgrade this thing? You know, mm. don't we need to think about how do we need to what are the things we could change? So how might that work? So it, does that mean you have an election and it's more AI driven than Well, know? I think there's a couple of things. <coughs> I'll just give you a couple of examples. Yeah. I think
0: this is a very it's a long big question, big conversation yeah. we can pull in political scientists to, to help us with it. But there's a couple of things i so for example in the US, one of the the criticisms of Facebook was that it was used to um, sow uh, disinformation to voters during election campaigns. Now, that was done in a way that leveraged how Facebook works. And how Facebook works is it allows you to target individual voters or individual Facebook users in geographic areas, Mm -hmm. right, specific geographic areas. Cambridge Analytica didn't use Facebook to target every American because – yeah. You don't want to target every American. Yeah. You, want, you just want to target those in a presidential election that are in swing districts mm-hmm. in a few states, like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And you want to then ignite their passions around, be they real or fake issues, around something that's controversial that will particularly do one thing, that will prompt them to go to vote. Mm-hmm. Because voting in the U.S. is not mandatory. Mm-hmm. It's voluntary. So there's two things at play here. That means that Facebook could be more easily weaponized by by people like the Russians. One is that we have, on the democracy side of the fence, we do not have a system when you elect presidents where one vote equals one equals every other vote because of this electoral college system. Yeah. A vote. I live in New York State, or I used to live in New York State. My vote is absolutely worthless in New York State. Why? Because New York State is always going to be a Democratic state when it comes to the U.S. election. If you get, if you are the Democratic. if you are the candidate for president in New York State and you get one more vote than the other guy running for president, you get all of New York's electoral college votes, 100%. Right, okay. You get every one. So my vote means nothing in New York State. If you eliminated that system and the whole country it means every vote from Alaska to Florida was worth exactly the same, you just had to get out of 320 million people you had to get, uh, you know, you had to get the, the most votes, yeah. suddenly it defangs this ability to just target individual communities yeah. and individual districts. The second thing I think, and I could take this uh, belief out of the book from Australia, is I think voting should be mandatory. Mm. Australia is the only democracy, I think, in the world where voting is mandatory. I used to, when I first came here, I thought that was a crazy idea. Mm. Now I think, it's a, I think it's a really good idea, and I've come to that realization over the past 20 years because I think it makes voting a uh, obligation, not a right.
1: Oh, you.
0: You can just turn that off. I think it makes voting an obligation and not a right. And I think we need to have more obligations on our our citizens, not just everything's a right. Some things are responsibilities. Um, And secondly, if everybody in the U.S. has to vote, guess what? You don't have to inflame people to get to the polls Mm. because everybody's going to go to the polls anyway. And so you don't have to create these divisive... It's, and people get inflamed to go to the polls by things that piss them off, and a lot of things that are pissing people off now are fake news, are fake yeah. stories about this, you know, just, you know the, the your political enemy is doing horrible things, is you know, is is eating babies in their spare yeah. time, you know, the, the ridiculous things. That's mm. what I'm going to go and vote. Yeah. Whereas everybody has to vote, so this would yeah.
1: this kind of defangs the Facebook yeah. effect. And you can, in Australia, you can vote pre the election. You, we have it on a Saturday, I think. In the US, it's on a Tuesday or it's during the week, isn't it's it? On a Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. So probably don't leave work if you're, yeah, <laughs> if you're, but, if you're apathetic.
0: And but anyway, those are two examples. Yeah, and okay. so I, I find that sometimes we don't have a full appreciation for how, um, not just in democracy, but how these analog systems are going to deal with AI-driven systems. And I th- and that's something I think we need to start to get our heads around. It's happening right now with uh, with Facebook advertising and, and advertising online. Like We're all like, oh, my God, I'm, serving, I'm being served ads that are so targeted at me. It's driven by AI. But we are analog beings, mm. like we, and, we, and so we're having AI kind of – it's AI versus analog, right? And so we need AI, we need AI on our side as well mm. as consumers. So, you know, I, I – and I think we'll get to a world where essentially you have your own AI, I have my own AI that's actually my – and my AI is interfacing with all these AI systems that are basically kind of coming at me. And so I, I, have, my, I have my AI as well. And I think we haven't thought through that
1: enough as, yeah. as well, but the implications for cool. that. Cool. That's good. We've covered a huge amount. I'm going to ask one question that we, we always finish off on because we, we start off with you as a young boy. Uh, at the end, uh, what are your suggestions for young people moving forward to have a successful life, su- successful career, and you've worked with, with young and not-so-young people in your career? What, what do you, what, what you suggest? Let's say someone who's sort of I don't know, in high school thinking about what they do next.
0: Yeah, and I'm lucky um, these days I... Not so much high school students, but a lot of university students I spend time mm. with, and they often ask me this sort of question. Um, and it's funny. I heard research lately that said, you know, the, the advice "follow your passion" is the worst advice you can give somebody <laughs> um, because you know your passion you're often a terrible at, and you know you're never going to be successful, and it just frustrates you. Um, so maybe that's true. But part of my answer is um, find something you love to do, um, regardless of what it is. I think. Loving what you do is so important to your happiness and your long-term um, fulfillment that uh, other things can't replace. Mm-hmm. You know, money can't replace or you know, superficial success can't replace. You have to really like what you do. I think the second thing is um, to be successful long-term and to be happy long-term is learning. Being able to learn and continually kind of open your mind to learning at every stage of your life, not just when you're young and in university and hey, I've got a lot to learn, is you know, when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 60, it's like constantly be learning and open to um, what other people can offer you. And in fact, going further than just learning, but trying to teach, trying to enable the people around you to be your your teachers. Hmm. Um, If you can turn people around you into teachers for you, it it just it just exponentially mm-hmm. increases your ability to learn, yeah. and then I think the third thing is um, think about what makes you happy, really makes you happy in life, and often that has nothing to do with work. For most people, it has nothing to do with work, and make sure that you find a way that you know that that is is, is center of everything that you do, and don't get misled by other things that people tell you should make you happy or uh, the perceptions about what make you happy, like. And that's not an easy thing to come up with. I think it takes many of us years Mm -hmm, to kind of mm -hmm. figure out what really makes us happy. But, you know, if you're going to live a long time or a short time on this earth, you know, you want every day to be as happy as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think that would be my my advice
1: to a young person. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, You've got a great TED Talk that we'll put a a link in the uh, background information for the the show. Anything else, That any other websites or Twitter handles or whatever you want to? You'll find me things. at
0: stevensheeler.com.au and, uh, um, and
1: that's it. Yeah, all right. Good on you. Thank you so much. All Thank right. you. Bye. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes, and articles on all things human centred, customer focused, innovation, and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru!